guys. Episode 39 with Dr. Brooke is about to start. We are going to go into a lot of stuff and it's freaking awesome. We're going to talk about naturopathic medicine, where it's going, what it is, what it can do for you. We're also going to tackle the adrenal fatigue debacle that's been going on forever, what it is, what it does to your body, and what you can do about it. And we're also going to jump into women's health, hormones, and a lot more awesome stuff. So here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is the wonderful Dr. Brooks. Say hello. Hello. Uh, So I like to start off with every podcast interview with um, a question to break the ice. And usually what I ask is, do you have any big plans for the weekend? (laughs) We're going to get more snow. I'm in New York City, so um, I'm not sure what our plans are. We've had terrible weather and it's not really very good snow. It's very slushy and icy. And we had a big snowstorm Tuesday and Wednesday and we're supposed to get more tomorrow. So if that's the case, probably just at home hanging out with my little ones, although I have plenty of work to do. (laughs) I'll probably be doing that as well. Nice. Uh, So next question to tell the audience who you are. Can you tell them what you do and how did you get into this industry? Sure. So um, I'm kind of a crossover from the I guess, functional medicine and natural health world and the the fitness world. So I'm a naturopathic doctor. I went to Bastyr University in Seattle. Prior to that life, I was a pharmacist. And um, so I feel like I have a pretty... Uh, I guess, middle-of-the-road approach when it comes to medicine. I definitely think both systems have a place, and I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of value in both when they're kind of used at the right time. And when I was at Bastyr and studying naturopathic medicine, um, I had just like my own interest in fitness and weight loss just in my own life. I've always been kind of a gym rat, and um, I luckily was able to blend those once I got out of um, Bastyr. I mean, I was certainly trained as a primary care physician, but that's never really been how I've worked. I've always worked with women with sort of wonky hormones and weight loss has often been a part of that. I think my practice and philosophy has kind of evolved over the years. I think I started out probably working a little bit more like a nutritionist and of course had a lot of women that came to me wanting to lose weight, but had some really significant underlying hormone issues. So I had to get better at that. And some of you guys might know me from Girls Gone Strong. I was one of the original board members. And I also have my own podcast, Better Every Day with Sarah and Dr. Brooke. And that's with Sarah Fragoso of Everyday Paleo fame. Awesome. So what made you choose naturopathic medicine instead of like going down the route of uh, medical school? Yeah. So when I was a little undergrad, I was um, all kind of constantly on the fence about did I want to do physical therapy, primary care medicine, or pharmacy. And the first one I could apply to was pharmacy school because you can apply to that after your first two years of undergrad and you sort of end up kind of doing your doctorate and finishing your undergrad at the same time um, for the doctorate of pharmacy degree. At least at the time I went to school, that was the case. So that was about two years before I could apply to any of those other programs. And I didn't think I would get in. It was pretty competitive and the sort of status quo was you would um, apply probably two years before you're accepted. And I got in right away. And um So I kind of went with it, not so much because I loved the idea of being a pharmacist, but sort of just fell into place. And um, so I started down that path and it was fine. I certainly have always been kind of a science nerd and I enjoyed my school and I enjoyed the work. Um, But in my own health, I was sort of struggling with what 
Um, I know you're going to ask me about adrenal fatigue. I probably had some version of something like that going on, just being a busy student. And there weren't really any answers for me to feel better. So I turned to, my mom has always been into natural medicine and kind of turned to, um, her naturopathic doctor to get some help and was just obviously really amazed by how simple her interventions were and how much better I felt just paying more attention to what I was eating. And I think I took two supplements. It was really like, I know now like what she did was really not rocket science, but it felt pretty significant to me. And so as I struggled with my own health, and I have PCOS, which I talk about a lot, and that was also something that Western medicine wasn't really giving me a ton of great options for. I just started exploring this more, and at the end of the day, I, I felt like it was um, just something I really was going to be happier doing, and then the fitness stuff sort of came after that. I initially didn't see a way to blend those two things, but um, luckily, I, I figured that out because I do think that's obviously something that um, a lot of doctors don't have time or even the knowledge or interest to do. And I think it's a really important thing because we tell patients and people all the time, you should exercise, but they don't always know how or how to do that um, for their goals or their unique hormone situation. So I kind of found this because my own health was struggling. Awesome. So when you were going through school for naturopathic medicine, what was kind of your main not maybe not main focus, but main interest of like the modalities they go through. Because I have a one of my best friends is about to finish naturopathic school, and he always tells me like, "Oh, I'm learning this right now, or I'm learning this right now." And there are so many different things that they get to learn. Yeah. So, what was kind of your favorite there are, thing? And- yeah, I mean, and that's, I think, a real credit to the naturopathic education. We have to learn all the, you know, foundations of Western medicine as well. We we are trained to be primary care providers, so we have to be able to, you know, look at an x-ray and interpret lab tests and screen for things that you would go see your family doctor for. So, and family practice doctors, I feel like they... You know, they don't always get their respect. They're not a fancy specialist, but they're super important because that's the person who catches a lot of, you know, the initial things. So while we learned all of that, and I I enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I would, um, naturopathic medicine is great about, so we learn all that Western medicine stuff and we learn about all the medications we need to use and what are commonly used for those um, conditions. But we also learn what herbs we can use, what nutrients we can use, how food can impact that. We learn a lot of physical medicine. We learn chiropractic and osteopathic type adjustments. And we do learn some stuff on exercise. When I went to Bastier, I did not feel our exercise was by any means caught up to um, the research. But um, And then we learned a lot of energetic stuff. I also have a master's in Chinese medicine, so I learned acupuncture. We learned some homeopathy. And so for me, I always really gravitated towards nutritional medicine and what became like the subspecialty or specialty for um, naturopathic doctors, medical doctors, DEOs, et cetera, that want to practice um, what we call functional medicine, which is really um, kind of, like I said, an, an additional specialty, which I felt like naturopathic medicine really laid the groundwork for me to go on and get additional training in that. And that kind of like micromanaging biochemistry and really understanding mechanisms with, you know, so when a woman comes to me and her skin is breaking out, like understanding that it's, there's like many, many things that could be causing that and trying to interpret lab work and her symptoms and get down to like what the underlying mechanism is. That's what I always really loved. That's awesome. Cause like, um, my wife right now is trying to choose between going to naturopathic school or MD and she's been asking all different doctors and MDs about their opinion and how they kind of chose. So this is all good information. So do you have any advice for people that are looking into this profession, but they are kind of like 
in the middle and they're trying to decide which direction they should go into? Yeah, I, I get asked this a lot, actually. Um, and I think a lot of people that are really into fitness or, you know, hormones and stuff, and they see what I do, and then they look at the curriculum for naturopathic school, and they're like, I don't want to learn how to treat allergies and give pap smears, and I, I don't have any interest in that. So something to think about, whether you're going the medical school route or naturopathic medical school route, is you really are trained to be a doctor, and you may end up with some sort of, like, fitness-based practice after that. Um I'm not sure if that's what she's thinking or more of a nutritional or functional medicine based practice, but you do really learn you know, how to be a doctor. Um, I think that there's benefits to both sides. Obviously, being having an MD after your name still lends a different level of credibility. Um, so it may not be how you want to practice. And you would be, if you were leaning towards natural medicine, at, at this day and age, there's so many, um, like there's a functional medicine institute and there's different ways you can get. Um, more of a holistic type of education. And even some of the medical schools are starting to offer more courses in what, I guess, alternative or complementary medicine. So I think initially you got to decide how you want to spend the next eight years of your life and studying what, because if, if you wanted to like perhaps have my practice, being an MD would be really great, but I would probably have done a lot of, you know, things in the last few years in terms of, you know, different fellowships and stuff that maybe don't have anything to do with what I'm doing every day with my life. So I think depending on where you want to practice, naturopathic doctors are not licensed in every state or every province. So that's something to think about as well. Have you seen like in the state of New York where you're at, has like naturopathic medicine grown as an industry or is it kind of still kind of a small little thing? It's still pretty small. We still are unlicensed here, which is fine for the type of practice that I have. I consider myself, you know, like almost more of a consultant. Um, but and I see people all over the place, but I do really miss having, I guess people know what it is that I do. It is still, I think we're making progress, but, um, you know, we've been saying that for a very long time. Um, <laughs> but there's still not that many of us here. Cause a lot of people, you don't go to school for that long to want, really want to practice in a state where you can't do anything you were trained to do. You know, I can't write a prescription. I can't order a lab test, um, for my New York patients. That is very frustrating, but a lot of people, this is where they wanted to live, whether they're from here or they love the city or, you know, this is where they grew up or have family or like in my case, um, I did not want to live here, but my husband is comedian. So we are here. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I don't know, New York, it's funny because I, it's, I find it very hard to explain what I do because there's, you know, when I was in, living in Seattle, well, the school's right there and another well-known school's a couple hours away in Portland. And, you know, we have full scope of practice there and we can do anything that we were trained to do. And you can see a naturopathic doctor just like you would, again, your family practice, or they can be your PCP and they can do your yearly checkups and all of that stuff. To, so to come from that where most people have at least heard of it, even if they've never been to a naturopathic doctor, and there's a lot more integration and teamwork, opportunities to work in hospitals. And so that is really amazing. And I do really miss that. Whereas in New York, I still have people be like, so is that like a massage therapist? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no not at all. And they're like, well, at least you didn't have to go to school for that. I'm like, actually, yeah, oh, I did. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, like here in BC, we're pretty fortunate because I would say out of all the clients I train, probably 70% of them have seen a naturopath at least once or twice in their life, and they know what it is. And yeah. um, I'm pretty fortunate because we have a, a naturopathic clinic that's probably like a 10-minute drive from our gym, and um, they have, I believe, 14 naturopaths working in this one clinic, and they even have mm -hmm. like a cancer unit 
that they've developed over the years and everybody goes to it. And I was uh, talking to one of the doctors there and they even have people coming from downtown Vancouver. And th this um, clinic's like probably a 45 minute drive from Vancouver. So I was pretty mm -hmm. impressed that people from downtown would go all the way into like the valley. That's what we call it to go see an ND rather than stay downtown and go see a medical doctor. Yeah, well, anymore, I think partly because of the internet, but partly because we have just a more interesting, complex uh, set of issues that are chronic, but not immediately life-threatening. And so it's one of and the things that, like what I work with, PCOS, Hashimoto's, menopause, I mean, there's just such limited um, options for, for women in those situations. And sometimes they're not they're not great for them for other reasons. And so, you know, natural medicine or I guess alternative and complementary medicine have more options. And so I think that because we can get information and, you know, people can go on the internet and they can look at different people's websites and kind of shop about does it, and now so many of us have books and podcasts and articles out. So you can get to know a lot about um, who you might be working with. And so I think it's great. I just think that people have a lot more options to build a really good team for themselves. Definitely. Like, I truly believe in naturopathic medicine. I like it because there's been times where I've gone to a doctor and I've asked them to do something or I had a question. They're like, no, we're not going to do that. I'm like, well, this is great. <laughs> and then you go to a, like a naturopathic doctor and you can like tell them your whole life story. And then they're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what my ideas are. What do you think? Should we go ahead and do this? And they're, it's almost like more coaching and counseling to get you better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, being a teacher and being a coach and being an educator, those are, you know, core tenets of that they drill into your head the first year of naturopathic medical school. So yeah, part of um, what I think makes us stand out is, well, we, our system is just set up differently. I mean, our first visit is an hour at least. Oftentimes people have an hour and a half or a two hour visit the first time. So because history is important, you know, when we've got someone coming in with feeling X, Y, or Z, it's not just important like what their labs look like today or how they're feeling today, but you know, where may this have come from? And so we do need to take a really long history. And that takes time. When MDs, the way, with the way that their system is set up, they are not afforded an hour and a half long with a patient. You know, they've got five minutes with you. And it's just a totally different system that honestly I don't think works very well for the doctors or the patients. Do you think in the future like naturopaths would ever work in a hospital? Well, they do in some cases. Like I said, in Seattle, there's opportunities to work in different um, outpatient clinics in a couple of the hospitals. So, I mean, I think that would be great in some in some ways. Um, I'm trying to think. We had a I did a couple acupuncture rotations in the hospital in Seattle, um, which was really great. We had a lot of underserved populations that were coming to the hospital for some basic care, and then they would get additional care through our clinic at a really low rate. And so those opportunities are there. I do th believe in, at least in Seattle, and I believe in um, Portland as well. I'm sure in Arizona that there are other there are opportunities in hospitals for some, you know, complementary care. Um, so there is room for that. I think as far as like. Um, you know, I think it'd be cool if we had a, a role in some of the acute stuff, but what we're really good at is like, okay, you came to the hospital, you got out of immediate danger. Now what? Now what do you need to do to keep yourself in a good place? That's what I think we're really good at. So we would be, I think, a great addition to like the hospital checkout line and then what you can send them home to do so that they can not end up back in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. That would be great. Like, I think it's in Ontario because my wife and I have been researching this profession and I think in Ontario in one city, they do have an outpatient center for naturopaths connected to their hospital. And that's what they do. It's like, 
you know, a patient comes in for whatever reason and they finally gets, um, gets a clearance to get out of the hospital, they go to the outpatient center with all the NDs to make sure that their health stays in check so they don't have to go back to the hospital. And I'm like, that is so smart. <laughs> we need this. We need both, right? Like yeah. if you've got a broken leg, you, I'm not going to be able to help to you today, but I can probably help you afterwards. And so I, I don't think it needs to be an either or. And I always tell the women I work with, you know, you sometimes they'll be, you know, they'll contact me and they're like, I don't know, I think I'm just going to go work with my MD because she really thinks I need to do X, Y, or Z. And then maybe I'll come back to this. Or they almost feel guilty telling me like, I work with a lot of women who are struggling to get pregnant. And then, you know, they hit a point where they're like, I think I've decided I want to do like some more medical intervention. And, you know, it's like, you don't have to choose. We don't really do the same thing. So if you decide to do certain, you know, components of Western medicine or more conventional medicine, there's a lot of like natural stuff you, you know, whether it's lifestyle diet or certain supplements that might make this medication less side effects for you or just support you in some other way. The blend is great for a lot of people. Have you had any luck with um, working with a medical doctor with your profession? Yes and no. Um, okay. Again, I think in when I was in Seattle, there was just a lot more understanding that we weren't like trained in someone's basement. You know, like we actually had a proper education and um, we had a license. We were regulated by the Department of Health. You know, so there was, I think, just a better understanding of our education. And it's been hit or miss in um, in New York. I have met some that are like great. I'm open to all types of healing or other people that are like, I don't know what this doctor does, but it doesn't seem harmful. Sure. I'll help you get these lab tests. And then I've had other people be, you know, like, this is crazy and you shouldn't waste your money. I'm kind of, and I kind of get it from the, the patients, you know, what they hear and come back with. So I do think it's changing a little bit. And I, I found certain professions are more open. Family practice and OBGYNs tend to be on the I'm generalizing here, tend to be much more open. I find OBGYNs really the most open. Um, I found, unfortunately, dermatologists tend to be the least open-minded to what, what I'm doing. And unfortunately, endocrinologists, which all my patients, for the most part, need an endocrinologist. So that's been unfortunate. So I have a handful that I work with, and I you know work with them a lot because of that. Okay. Um, have you ever had to like stand up for your profession talking to an MD? Because there's sometimes like... I've seen it before where like NDs and MDs kind of butt heads quite often. So I'm just kind of curious with your experience in that. You know, I haven't really had that, but, um, you know, I think if I've got someone who's super closed minded, it just never even gets that far. They're just not interested in having a conversation with me. Um, and the ones that are more open, a lot of times you kind of win them over. Like, they come in, their patient comes in and shows them the kind of workup that we've done. And some of them will look at that and be like, wow, this is incredibly thorough and thoughtful. And I can see where they were going with this. And they did a really great job. And maybe I want their card. Um, so I have, like I said, I have a couple of endocrinologists that, um, you know, I, I treat a lot of women with Hashimoto's. And so, you know, there's a lot of them that have been like, I don't know what else to do besides the medication. Like if you still don't feel well, you know, go for it, go work with this girl. And so I think some of them are probably have come around a little bit just because, you know, they're, it's somewhere, it's something for them to say to that patient who they're sort of like, we've done what we can. Your lab's like, okay, I'm not willing to raise your dose. I don't know why you still feel bad. So this seems to be helping. Go for it. Okay. Yeah, because I've uh, had a good conversation with another person where he's so research-based, and I could not convince him that naturopathic medicine was worth 
like the time and for him to actually even try it. And we were like going back and forth about it. And I'm like, well, have you ever tried a naturopath? And he's like, well, why would I waste my time? And I'm like, how can you like base a judgment like that when you've never even tried it? <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of holes in our education, just like there's some holes in medical education. They don't get any nutrition training, yet nutrition is important. So, I mean, I think most of them will admit they got, you know, an hour. And so they've got, pro- you know, they have problems in their education and we have areas we should be doing better too. You know, like acute care. Sometimes you're going to, if you're running a primary care practice, there's going to be times when, you know, more emergency medicine is going to be something you really need to know. And I think that that's an area we could have done. We could, at least when I went to school, I could have had better training in that. I think that there's, you know, one downside because we see people for so long when we graduate, we haven't treated as many patients because there's just only so many hours in your education, right? When you're doing your clinical um, internships and residencies, there's so there's that. So I do think there's areas we could do better. But the one argument that I think absolutely does not hold water is that there's no research on any natural compound or any nutrient or any dietary theory. There's tons of research and it's not all in obscure journals or journals done in another country because we have this bias that we're the best <laughs> in terms of medical research. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in big popular, you know, gold standard medical journals. It's just not usually the stuff that they're as interested in. And again, I don't really think they have the time to do it, but that's an argument that I feel like just that's kind of BS. I really don't think that we can say there's no research on any, I mean, get on PubMed and search curcumin. There's a lot of studies on that. I mean, we know that it is better absorbed when you take it with fat. We know it's better absorbed when you add it to black pepper. That's not stuff we just guess. Like that's, that's in the research. Okay. Uh, so I think earlier you mentioned about adrenal fatigue and I kind of wanted to jump in there because I think it was maybe last week that a bunch of people on Facebook were posting that um, <laughs> article that it doesn't even exist. So I was kind of wondering what your takes on that. <clears throat> okay. I figured you might be going to ask about this. This is all over the fitness yeah, community. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not going to tear apart the study. I think that people have made some points about some downsides to the way that the study, like when they pulled all that data together, I think the bigger thing to think about is um, there's a couple ways to talk about what is commonly called adrenal fatigue. First of all, that is a terrible name. Like it just should have never been called that because that implies you have an adrenal gland that's tired and it is too fatigued and worn out and burn out to do its job to make cortisol. It makes a couple of hormones. Your adrenals make cortisol Adrenaline also makes aldosterone. So there's some really important jobs to this gland, but just like your thyroid or your ovaries. And the funny thing to me is, so what this really is, let me back up. So it's not really adrenal fatigue and I'm using quotes over here. It's just, that's what it was called. And that is try as I may in my practice to educate um, what this actually is. Adrenal fatigue is a very, it's the way the NASA's think of it. And it's just a really ingrained term. So it's hard to kind of get away from that. So even those of us that study this stuff and practice this and research this still usually call it adrenal fatigue because that seems to be what people, you know, that are coming to us understand. But what it really is, is it's better termed HPA axis dysfunction. So we've got, you know, some components of your brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary, and these release hormones and signals that tell your adrenal glands what to do. So the idea that the adrenal gland is fatigued, tired, burned out, can't make cortisol is what people think of when they hear the term adrenal fatigue. And I think part of what that study was pointing out is that 
that is not a thing in terms of the medical literature. What would really be classified as adrenal fatigue would be something called Addison's disease, which is an autoimmune condition where you have antibodies against the adrenal gland. Enough of it gets destroyed. This is just like Hashimoto's where enough of the thyroid gland gets destroyed that you can no longer make adequate hormone to keep yourself going. So that would really truly be adrenal fatigue. And that's not what most people are talking about. Now, if you look at if you go again to PubMed and type, type in HPA axis dysfunction or HPA axis discoordination, you're going to get, you know, 20,000 studies. So there is, it's just, I think part of it is we're arguing about whether or not this thing exists. Um, and again, if adrenal fatigue is an accurate term, and that's that's really not. And you can certainly look at, at research on how much stress has impacted our health. I mean, that is obviously well-researched as well. And what quote-unquote adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction really is, think about who this person is who's coming to you thinking that they've been online and they have adrenal fatigue. So they, they come to you and they say, I can't fall asleep at night. I'm just like, I'm tired, but you know, I just can't turn my brain off or I fall asleep, but then I can't stay asleep. I wake up like with my heart racing and I can't go back to sleep for a couple of hours. Sometimes I wake up really hungry. Obviously I wake up in the morning, super tired and my brain fog. I, I don't really tolerate light. Like I can't stand bright light going out in the sun. I, you know, just have to wear sunglasses. I have terrible sugar cravings. I, you know, just kind of craving sugar all day yet in the morning. I don't really have a good appetite for protein. I know you're telling me that's what I should be eating for breakfast. And then in the afternoon, I really, really have to have Starbucks. So that's very real, right? You've heard someone complain of those things. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> or like I've been super stressed out as a woman and she's like, and now like my cycle's really late and my PMS is really bad. Um, so I used to have a 28 day cycle. Now it's like 40 days before I get my period. So these are all very, very real things. And so I think arguing about whether or not adrenal fatigue is kind of missing the point. So let's think of that person. What does that sound like? That is a person who's lost their ability to cope with stress. So maybe when they were 20 years old or 15 and, you know, let's say 18 years old, you're in college, you can stay up for four days. You can party on the weekends. You can stay up, you know, studying for a test and think back to like finals when you hardly slept at all, you know, and then come Friday, like you go out with your friends and you're tired, but you sleep a little bit and you're fine, right? And you drink a bunch of coffee and energy drinks and you got a little bit of rest. You went home for spring break and you came back and you're fine. And as an adult, now you have like a new baby or you get a new promotion or you get a really bad, you know, infection. It just really kind of wipes you out. That is you losing your ability to adapt to stress. And so, what this HPA axis is, is this coordinated system where we should have, you know, an, a higher amount of cortisol in the morning and then it should taper off naturally throughout the day. And this is all done by, you know, light signals and our, some sort of relationship to a natural environment, which we don't have. And this stress response, the you know, we have evolutionarily had was meant to last, you know, like hours, minutes to hours. You know, you step out in front of a car, you have the capability to get the heck out of the way quickly. But we all know that the type of stress we deal with now, there's some of that. I live in New York City, so stepping out in front of a cab can, can really happen. Um, but we have those types of 
stresses or you go do an intense workout. And we're meant to be able to cope with that. But unfortunately, what we have is just this, it's just an ongoing stress. And it may not always be as bad as stepping in front of a car, but you think about through your day or through your week or even a stretch of a couple months, just how much stress we put ourselves through. And we know about a lot of stress. Like we know that it's stressful to you know, be in a bad financial situation. We know it's stressful to have problems in a relationship. We know it's stressful to have, you know, a new baby. We know it's stressful to get a promotion, but we don't always know that we have all this internal metabolic stress, that our blood sugar being unbalanced is stressful. Having too much inflammation is stressful. The way we exercise sometimes is stressful. So there's a lot of like internal stresses that we don't even know that we have. Certain nutrient deficiencies can be really stressful for us. Uh, Kind of lingering autoimmune stuff that we don't even always know about. So we look at this HPA axis that's supposed to be able to send this coordinated message throughout the day, right? We're supposed to have this high cortisol taper off. Well, that person I described in the beginning, they may have elevated cortisol or adrenaline at night. So the high cortisol gives them that like monkey spinning brain where they, they should be winding down, but they're not able to fall asleep, but they're tired. Or the even low cortisol through the night can cause those little adrenaline bursts and have you wake up in the middle of the night. And then this person who we should be, like, the sun should come up, melatonin should go down, cortisol should rise, we should just wake up. But that's not how we feel. We're dragging ourselves out of bed. We need coffee to get going. And so that is a discoordinated rhythm. It's not so much that the adrenal gland just can't keep up. It's just that we've put the heat on this lovely coordinated mechanism between the brain and this gland that should be, you know, working, but we're in a really weird environment. And we, instead of just asking it to be stressed every once in a while, when we need that response to change blood flow, to get out of the way, to, you know, put some fuel in our system so we can again run or fight, we're asking it to do that all the time. And of course, we've all heard the you know, notion that our body doesn't really sense the difference between, it only knows stress. It doesn't know that the fact that you're running late is not going to kill you. You still feel stressed, right? You still feel agitated and stressed out when you're um, do, going, trying to get to where you're going and you're running late. So what happens with this system is you just have lost the ability to keep this coordinated rhythm and hormones get high and low throughout the day. And I do, you know... I do test um, my patients for this a lot for like cortisol output. And when you look at it throughout the day, it's not usually even someone who comes in thinking that they're like quote unquote burned out or in adrenal fatigue. It's not always there just like flatlined across the bottom. Most often what we see is this discoordination where it's high when it's not supposed to be and they can't fall asleep. It's, um, you know, low when it's supposed to be higher, like to get you through the morning and the afternoon. And that, there is certainly evidence of that, both in the research and when you talk to someone sitting in front of you. I think where it's kind of gotten weird is that, at least in the fitness industry, I feel like this gets attacked a lot, partly because I think people say, well... Um, there's practitioners out there who like all I treat is adrenal fatigue. And so I'm going to make a lot of money off you because you're going to have to buy my fancy adrenal supplement and you're going to have to work with me for years and years. I feel like that's the, um, for some reason, that's the persona of the person who helps with people who are in, you know, HPA dysfunction. And it's really not, I mean, I, that's not how I work with women or I mostly work with women, but that's not how I work with people who are, you know, having a difficult time with their hormones and their stress response. I mean, it's 
the supplements, like if I give you like an adrenal glandular supplement or because you're really low in the morning, or I give you what we call adrenal adaptogens, which again, there's research on these and they help um, this brain and adrenal axis just get a little bit more coordinated. The reason those are sometimes necessary is because... Um, you know, just like if you had a broken leg, you would put a cast on it while it was healing. You would hope to take the cast off, right? Like eventually the bone heals, you take the cast off, you put the crutches away and you're good to go. And maybe that bone is a little weaker than it was, or you have to retrain it. Um, you know, maybe the muscles around that are obviously atrophied and less strong because you haven't been using them the same way. And so there's a healing process. I think of, you know, when someone's coming in with this hormone disruption, the supplements are a nice cast and maybe a pair of crutches while you help them remove the stress. So when I, and I do see people that have been working with someone for a long time and they come in and they're like, well, I got tested for adrenal fatigue three years ago and I'm still taking my supplements. I'm still not better. Well, then we didn't, the practitioner did not do their job. We we can give you some supplements to kind of help while you work on the stress, whether that's you have nutrient deficiencies, inflammation, you're eating some food that doesn't work for you, you're not getting enough sleep, you've got a you know poor sleep environment where you're not getting enough sleep, too much light, temperature's off, you're in something else is going on with your nutrition that you're not able to stay asleep. There's just so many things that we have to do, but there's something that causes this. Or you went through a really stressful event and we just haven't given you enough time, you know, to come out on the other side. So that was a really long answer, but I guess <laughs> that, you know. I don't think adrenal fatigue is, I mean, adrenal fatigue is Addison's disease. It's an autoimmune condition. You're probably going to need cortisol replacement. Um, functional adrenal fatigue or this discoordination, is, it's a very real thing. And of course, if that system, cortisol and insulin are some of your like main hormones that coordinate and influence estrogen and progesterone and thyroid and all these other things. So when that gets off, now you've not just got a patient who's being told adrenal fatigue's not real. There's This is all in your head and you're not going to get any help. But as they sort of go on and don't know what to do about this, all these other hormones you know, get off as well. And it just becomes a bigger mess. And it all comes back to you know, our environment, our lifestyle, there's a lot of things we're doing really poorly for our own ability to, you know, cope with stress. Man, I think you got the record for the longest answer there. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's good. It was good. So there's a couple of ways that I want to get through this. Um, so I think the first thing or second thing you might have mentioned was sleep. And when people were posting this um, research study, uh, I think it was Dr. Spencer Nadelsky that made a comment that it most likely starts off with like poor sleep habits. So do you think sleep has a huge impact on how our body functions and how our hormones work effectively and things like that? Well, absolutely. And keep in mind, like sleep is part of like being with your eyes closed <laughs> um, and no light coming in. That is part of what coordinates this rhythm. So a lot of this has to do with, and a lot of the research on you know, again, I'm over here air quoting adrenal fatigue was started on shift workers. We're trying to figure out like, you know, studying why their hormones were making these certain shifts. Um, so yeah, I think that high stress and lack of sleep are probably fundamental to what's going on with all of our hormone problems. So I would totally agree with that. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, Sarah and I, my podcast partner, we talk about this a lot, especially women, you know, we just kind of wear this stress badge of honor, like, and I know when I was younger, I was super impressed with how much I could do on four hours of sleep, you know, and it, I felt kind of crappy, but you know, it was sort of like, 
I was a little bit of a badass, right? Because I could keep up and I took on average 32 or 33 credits every quarter while I was at Bastier. So I mean, I was a zoo. I mean, and I'm working out and just, you know, it was, and I threw in a kind of a stressful relationship just to top it all off, you know? So I kind of have always thrived on stress. So I think that um, too often we're sort of, you know, we live that way or we think it's normal because everybody around us stress. If you, for, for most people, if they look around like their circle of friends, it's like, well, everyone's bloated after they eat. I thought that's just what happens. Everybody needs coffee. We have a quote unquote coffee break like scheduled into our American day. Everyone's tired in the afternoon. Everybody has to sleep with the TV on because they can't turn their brain off. Everybody drinks coffee in the morning. And, you know, all my girlfriends are dealing with bad PMS. And so we confuse like normal with common. So just because it's common doesn't mean it's it's normal. So sometimes it's sleep that disrupts that. And I think that is a, I would probably agree with him that that is the vast majority of it, but that's not the only thing that can um, shift this, you know, axis and shift this discoordination. And all it is, is that, again, those signals are just getting they're not as robust and coordinated and able to adapt because that's what this whole mechanism is supposed to be about is you can adapt to stress. You can get stressed and come back out of it. And what we lose in you know, adrenal fatigue or HPA access dysfunction, that's just not that catchy, right? It's too hard to say. Adrenal yeah. fatigue is way easier. But what we lose is our ability to cope with stress. And again, you talk to that person who's in quote unquote adrenal fatigue. And they're like, I just can't deal. You know, everything just, you know, my kids slightly stress me out and I just yell at them. My husband doesn't put a cup away and we get in a huge fight. You know, I go to work and somebody moved something on my desk and I'm in tears. That's the ability, you've lost the ability to cope with stress. So if you take it back to kind of the the hormones, it's, you know, again, that axis has just lost its ability to cope with stress and it's most certainly can heal. Obviously, the quicker you start taking care of yourself, um, you know, it, it can certainly heal faster, but I don't always see this just from lack of sleep. I see this a lot with women who've been, you know, chronic dieters or under eating or overtraining because that's a population that I work with. They have undiagnosed inflammation or autoimmunity or low thyroid. Because remember the thyroid and the adrenals, like they're kind of your get up and go hormones, right? Like cortisol and thyroid. And when one is suffering and it's not caught, obviously that's going to put the heat on the other system to kind of keep you going throughout the day. So I would agree that sleep is a fundamental part to healing this, but it's probably not the only cause of, of what can throw this axis off. Okay. Um, so if you had a woman come to you and like every box was checked off that she had adrenal fatigue, how would you treat that for her to get better? So I, you know, do a lot of other testing as well. So we'd make sure every other system was in place. But again, I would probably, depending on where she was struggling the most, is it, you know, what can we do to help you sleep better? And I'm not even opposed to using sleeping medications. Like sleeping, I think, is so fundamental to someone recovering from this. So if we've tried natural things, if, you know, sometimes a medication is the way to go, at least temporarily. But again, it goes back to we have to fix what's you know, stressing you out. And if it's just lack of sleep, great. That's, you know, relatively easy to fix. We can usually get you sleeping better, you know. So I usually give some sort of, you know, nutritional support, whether that's nutrients or herbs, trying to like, again, just support this mechanism. Because here's the problem I see when we've got somebody, and maybe this is just me living in New York. I, I mean, I just, but I don't know. I don't think so. But it's, 
When you've got someone who's got a stressful situation, let's say it's their job, or let's say they're trying to sell their house, or let's say they are going through a divorce, that stress doesn't go away after my appointment with them. So sometimes we really have to give them support. And I think it's sort of when we know we've got like herbal adaptogens and vitamin C and pantothenic acid, and we've got these things that we know kind of put a little bit of support and um I guess like, again, crutches and a cast under the system while they try to get out of the stress. So I think it's a mistake to ignore the life stress and just say, we'll just take this supplement forever. Um, sometimes those stresses don't just go away because we know that they're a problem. And then also look at the lifestyle stress, but also look at the biochemical stress, you know, look at their lab work and see if they've got a lot of oxidative stress, if they've got a low grade nutrient deficiency, or they've got a food sensitivity or something like that. Those are all stressful. And so some people it's as simple as it's obvious they're going through a really stressful time. You know, maybe they're not going to sleep well, but when they get out of it on the other side, they're going to be fine. Could we support them in that and make it less stressful and make it cause less damage? I mean, I think that's a wise idea. Um, but also looking past that, because most people have felt like this for a long time. I mean, think that on average, and I saw this data somewhere, so don't quote me on this, but you know, on average, I think it takes, for example, a woman who comes in with depression, alterations in her cycle, fatigue. It takes around average five years to get some sort of help with that. And usually it's because they've tried to go to their doctor. A, it's paid for. It's on your insurance. B, it may not be all they know. Or C, they may be you know, fighting some of that bias of like, well, I don't know where I'd even start looking for a natural practitioner that wasn't crazy or wasn't a quack, right? Maybe that's just totally not in their wheelhouse about what they're comfortable with. So it just takes them a long time of not getting answers, unfortunately, before they get help. And again, I don't think that's the MD's fault. It's just not really the way their system is is set up. But during that time, a lot more stuff goes wrong. So by the time someone comes to me and they're in you know, adrenal fatigue or what we call burnout or whatever, they, you know, a lot of stuff has shifted and they're dealing usually with more than just a dysregulated cortisol rhythm. So depending on whatever else that was, that would be additional treatment that we do. But I always, we always want to go back to, you know, what started this? What are the ongoing stressors, lifestyle, biochemical, you know, nutritional how many things can we remove? And we have to remember too, I might know that a person needs to change X, Y, or Z in their diet and they may just not be willing or ready to, to do that. So again, I think why not support them with a couple you know, nutrients or whatever during that time while we work on whatever's going on in their headspace or lifestyle that makes that feel like something that they can't accomplish. Man, that's a lot of like things that you get to be put up against and try to like find balance in your life. I find it like, yeah, like you said earlier, like women put so much stress on themselves and don't take enough time to kind of just relax and be like, hey, this hour is for me. And because I train primarily mothers, like probably 90% of my clients are all, you know, moms between the ages of like 32 and 45. And I see it all mm -hmm. the time. They're all constantly like thinking about everybody else but themselves. And then they're like, They'll come to me like, oh, I'm not losing weight. I'm trying to do everything. And I'm like, that's exactly what's happening. You're trying to do everything. So you, I don't know. It, it's tough. Like, how, how do you help those women that are taking on so much, but at the same time, they have a goal of weight loss or trying to do something? Like, how do you kind of communicate to them to kind of take a step back? And this is going to be a process. Welcome to my world. This is what I do. <laughs> yeah, honestly. I mean, freaking, I, you know, I still fall into some of those. Like my Instagram post today was, I've just been feeling super, super tired the last week. And I 
think I kind of have a touch of a virus that my daughter had and I'm definitely not getting enough sleep. I have two kids that come in bed with me and like the little one now brings like 14 dolls with her every night and I wake up and just like a <laughs> sea of toys. I'm like, no wonder I'm exhausted. Um, but I have a lot going on right now and uh, I've got a retreat coming up. I'm working on a book proposal. We've got all this stuff going on in addition to my the podcast really growing my practice. So I'm super busy and I realized last night the first time I ate a like solid, like real meal, like some vegetables and some protein, like what looks like what I tell people to eat. That was dinner. The rest of the day, like I think I grabbed a Quest bar at one point. I grabbed like part of my leftover daughter's leftover breakfast. Like I just never, it was one of those days. And I realized that I've been feeling so crappy and just writing it off to not getting enough sleep. And I was thinking about how when I look back at the couple of weeks, it's kind of all been like that. And I totally missed like just like basic self-care of getting in like some solid meals. So I still fall prey to this. So when you're talking about that, that woman, so I've got two little kids, you know, entrepreneur plus a doctor, like I've got a lot of stuff going on. I've got a husband who's gone all the time, trying to get to the gym, trying to put myself back together after having two kids. So I totally get it. And I think what we have to do when you're working with, um, some with that woman, so the woman who's, and sometimes it's kids and sometimes it's career, right? There's a lot of women that just have like a lot of stuff on their plate. Maybe it's their coworkers and their team that they're leading, that they're taking care of or dealing with, not necessarily their kids, but like this woman, we all know her and we've all worked with her. So I think first things first is we just have to have an understanding that, you know, if there's on like this much stress and not enough sleep, um, that weight loss is not something your body necessarily wants to do very easily. So we do have to set it up in a way where we have those basics dialed in of managing stress, managing sleep. And, you know, good food. So when we're dealing with that woman, I think the first thing to think about is doing the best you can with your nutrition because that always, A, it's the harder thing to do, but B, that always gives, I think, women more results than training. I think training is super important, um, especially when you're under stress, like you've got to be weight training because stress, you know, it's going to, it's very catabolic and it's very easy to lose your muscle mass when you're under a lot of stress. So I do think that exercise is another really important piece of it, but it's... I think secondary to diet, partly because we do that several times a day and partly because, you know, food is something that can really shift our hormones one way or the other where we're trying to either create a more favorable like fat burning environment versus fat storing environment. Um, It's also something we have a lot of control over, even though it doesn't always feel like we do. So when we're trying to do it all, go back to the basics, ensure sleep, do the best you can with your nutrition, make sure you're at least strength training two, if not three times a week, try to do some walking. And as far as weight loss, you may need to do more than that. There may need to be some, you know, micromanaging of your diet, or there may need to be some different ways to train to get better results, but none of that will work when you're under a lot of stress and crazy busy. It just doesn't. I mean, if you think about even what we know, like why is high intensity training so effective? Well, it stimulates cortisol and then it stimulates, you know, these other great lean hormones like testosterone and growth hormone, especially growth hormone for women. But if you've got someone who like has to train in the morning before they go to work and their HPA axis is off and their cortisol is super low in the morning, they don't get a great cortisol response from that workout. And it's, again, adding one more stress. So they just kind of continue to stay in this unhealthy hormone spot. So my work is always to, um, 
you know, have women give themselves a little grace. You know, this is, is what it is. Most of us have made either the choice to be a mom or the choice to have a career. So we have to kind of take a step back that those are, this, this is kind of the situation. What can we change? What can we improve on in terms of making changes in our lifestyle or our work situation or our childcare? And then kind of letting yourself off the hook for the weight loss until you're in a healthy place to do it because what is not worth it and what so many of us tend to do, and I've done this multiple times in my life, push myself into total hormonal disarray for the sake of losing weight. And then you not only, maybe you get some weight loss, but you definitely stall. And then you create such a bigger mess that we have to, you know, clean up later. And I think that are a lot of the fitness people that you and I probably run with, you know, that there is a lot of care paid to that. I think we're trying to really encourage women, especially like the message at Girls Gone Strong is, you know, you're enough as you are and moms really need to make self-care a priority. And I think that's all great, but sometimes that feels like another stress. Like, great, now I have to like get a massage every day and I have to, or I have to do, I have to reserve one hour for myself every day. So again, I go back to what can you do? Like sometimes it's, putting a face mask on while you give your kids a bath. Like maybe that's not the facial at a spa that you really want, but it's something, right? Maybe it's making yourself kind of a pretty salad instead of like throwing two handfuls of lettuce and a pre-cooked chicken breast on a, which I do all the time. So there's nothing wrong with that, but maybe sometimes you find even a moment for yourself for self-care rather than putting it on your plate that you have to, you know, spend an hour doing something every day for yourself. Yeah, like uh, when I was interviewing Coach Stevo, he said something really awesome that this like clicked in my head. And he said that if you can get your clients to make fitness and health number five on their priority list, then you've done a good job as a coach. And I was like, man, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of coaches out there that think their clients are lazy if fitness is not number one. And then they get frustrated and then the client gets frustrated. But then I started telling this to a couple clients and they're like, oh, I really like that. And they felt that it almost took off a stress in their life that it doesn't have to be number one. And they don't have to think about, oh, I'm going to be late for the gym. Oh, I need to pack a, a good lunch for tomorrow. I got to cook dinner. I got to do this and this and this. Whereas it's like, if it's number five, there's a little bit more breathing room for them. Well, and we care, you know, I think it's, it's important to us because we're in this industry, right? Like, so I think yeah. for a coach, yeah, it's important to me. It's what I do. I eat, sleep and breathe this stuff, but that's not you know, that's not usually the woman that, or the client that you're working with. So I think that's great advice. And, um, you know, we want our clients to, when we make it number one, like the, I'm going to, everything else is going to go by the wayside. I'm going to lose two hours of sleep so I can get up and do a really great workout before work. And I'm going to maybe stay up an hour late so I can prep my food for the next day. Because, you know, then we did like two other things that weren't very healthy for us. Right. And then also we have, when we put it number one today, it doesn't make that number one or number three or number five for the rest of our life. And I think showing up to move, showing up every day to take care of ourselves and move our body and be strong and be healthy, that's something we you, we really have to figure out a way. Like, how am I going to do that in 30 years, not just today at three o'clock? Like, that, that's really the goal, right? And maybe I won't have a six pack, but I will be strong and able and able to, you know, take care of myself and be fit and healthy for the rest of my life. And that's the goal. And so often when we put it number one, we do all this other stuff that it's, it's not going to work for us in the long haul. Have you recently, like, change the way you looked at like your profession or the things that you do in the last like three years like have you changed your mind about anything 
Yeah, I change my mind constantly. I mean, I look at this by day when I first graduated, and I'm like, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> you know, because yeah. but that's our job. That's why they call it practice. You know, you research is always changing. You know, we we learn more. Sometimes we think that's how what quote unquote medical fact, right? Like our scientific fact. It's what we know, and it's the best that we have. But sometimes we learn something new. We have a new understanding, or we continue to work with a population of women or people, and we understand them better. You know, I used to kind of. I was younger and I didn't have kids and my time was my own. And I just couldn't figure out why someone couldn't make it to the gym six times a week. Like I just didn't get it, you know? And I felt like a really empathetic person, but I also felt like, well, I don't understand. Like I'm making this happen. Then I had kids. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was the most profound to me was becoming a working mom. And I was like, holy cow, I really didn't get it. And I heard women, you know, talk about the struggles with that. And I really didn't get it until I until I did it. So even though I thought I was being empathetic, so I have really changed a lot of how I practice um, because I've understood more and grown as both a doctor and a woman and a mother and had to, you know, priorities are just different. Like my priorities are my kids more than if I lose weight. It it just is. And I have to be okay with that, right? Because I work in a profession where we're told very often that if you don't look a certain way, you can't possibly know, you know, what you're talking about. And that, that was something I had to get over (laughs) because, um, you know, A, I'm not a personal trainer, but I do like, you know, those are a lot of my colleagues and there's a lot of pressure with that. And so I think, yeah, I would say just because of practice and things change, you learn more, you grow more. I think that any of us that were still doing the same thing five years ago probably shouldn't be. Yeah, like I hated the idea that if you're a trainer, you had to have a six pack. And I'm like, seriously, like, come on, like that that trainer with the six pack is the one that's posting like shirtless selfies every single day. And I'm like, that's not really helping anybody. Yeah, and maybe it is, right? But it doesn't help me. But like, maybe for someone, that's what they need to see. And I think that it's great that um, there's just some, there's better information out there. And I think we've got more and more trainers that are, you know. Like I look at people like Mike Robertson who are just like really helping people or Kate Gillette's another one just that are helping people have like a functional, healthy body. And that's a good foundation if you want to lose more weight, but it's also a good foundation for, you know, being able to live the rest of your life. And my training after having my second child, the first time, of course, all I wanted to do was get back in my jeans because that's what we're supposed to do, right? It's impressive when yeah. who's like six weeks out and um, three months out. And of course, we're inundated with you know celebrities or even friends that were able to do that. So we think that's that's normal. And so I caused myself a lot of injury doing that. And so the second time, so kind of going back to what you were talking about, like making it the fifth priority, I, I really shifted my mindset after my second child to, I don't, I obviously I, there are things that I don't love about my body after or wouldn't be what I would choose, I guess I shouldn't say don't love them, but, um, wouldn't be what I would necessarily pick out of a catalog after having two kids. But my goal was not to necessarily undo those things or focus on weight loss. My goal was just to be strong again. And it was interesting how that goal kept me showing up to train super consistently, even though I had two kids, which was very different than um, how I've always approached it before, which was sort of like, I have to be here because until I change my body, I'm not good enough, right? So yeah, I think that sometimes where we prioritize that or sort of what our goal going into that can actually make us find more ways to do it because it's a much more, I guess I always say nourish, not punish. 
attitude. Yeah. Like, I really like what Jesse Mundell does online. And I, like, I send her website to all the female clients I train that are moms to get some actual good information about, like, prenatal and postnatal, like, information. And I think she's done a post where she actually took photos of her belly uh, post-pregnancy and to kind of show you how your body naturally just heals after giving birth. I was like, that was amazing. Like, I can't believe you actually did that. And usually when trainers or coaches or anyone that wants to help people, if they, you know, post something vulnerable about themselves, it just opens up so much more out into the community and the people online. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that I chose the brand better because I'm such a I guess, recovering perfectionist. And so that was maybe a big message to myself. Um, And I had an interesting experience. I I think that it's because of what we're gravitating towards online. I do think like transparency and honesty is really coming through. And I think that's great because that is, that's real life. Right. And I think that, um, you know, I had an experience when I wrote a book um, a few years ago, we had a video online and if anybody follows me, they know the story, but um, you know, we had a a video online and, um, I had someone just like tear into like how my fat face, fat neck. I don't know. She just like laid into my body and just, and it was funny because she didn't say anything. She didn't really like the program, but she didn't say like, she's wrong about insulin, you know, which wouldn't really have affected me because I can have a conversation about that. I don't have a lot of emotional attachment to the, you know, biochemistry and, you know, kinetics of insulin. Like I can talk about that and I'm pretty confident in my knowledge about that. But it was so interesting when she said that because what I was doing is I sort of got plunked onto this, like a little bit bigger stage with all these fitness people where, and I didn't, I hadn't planned it. I hadn't, um, I didn't feel ready for it. I didn't feel like I looked like a fitness model. I mean, I didn't look like a fitness model, but at the time this was the best shape I've ever been. And I, now granted I was going doing crazy things to maintain that. And I really wasn't in a healthy spot emotionally or physically, but I, you know, was skinnier. And, um, so for her to say that to me, a on Amazon B at a time where I was like, man, I don't know if I could ever look any better than this. Right. (laughs) So if this is as good as it gets, and I'm still going to get attacked for that, I have to do some work in my head that that's not going to destroy me. Right. And it really changed how I was trying to present to the world that like, I got it all figured out. I'm in good shape. So you should listen to me. And I ended up writing a blog post of like, like, what does it feel like to be called fat? And I was just really honest, like, well, it didn't feel good. But like the kind of the point of the whole thing was, had she said something that I didn't necessarily think was true, it wouldn't have been so bad, right? Like if she would have commented on, like I said, cortisol or something, I could have had a conversation about that. What she said was bad, but it wasn't nearly as bad as anything I've ever said to myself probably multiple times earlier that day before I read her review. And so I really changed the way that I was working with women and not trying to show them, like, if you do all these things I'll tell you to do, then you'll be perfect like me, which is what I was, I think, trying to do, maybe not even knowingly. But now it's just all about sharing my struggles and my process. And, you know, all we can do is do better than we would have done yesterday and kind of bring our best to this day with our food and our sleep. And, you know, you do the best you can as often as you can. Yeah, I hate how there's like those internet trolls that just like look for the opportunity to like send out negative thoughts out there. And I'm like, what's going on in that person's life that they feel like they need to like go on Instagram or any kind of social media and be like, you're ugly, you're fat, I can't believe you posted this picture. And I'm like, Seriously? Like, what's going on here? 
Yeah. But if we've got any people that are, you know, building an online platform or putting themselves out there, it's it's going to happen. You know, it just it's part of it's part of what happens when you put yourself out there and it's you know, we just can't let it stop us. If you've got some work that you think will be helpful, then, you know, just I think just know it's going to happen, right? I'm yeah. sure there's some doctor at Harvard if he heard this video would be like that. That ND on that show is stupid. You know, that's going to happen too. <laughs> I you know, we can't all we can do is kind of not be those people when, um, and I find engaging in some of that online stuff, just, I just skip it. But, um, yeah, I wrote a response on my blog for that one. I didn't respond to her at all. I and mean, of course I had a bunch of people like jump to my defense. Like there's a bunch of comments under this, and I think it's still up there, but the, you know, a bunch of comments on this thread of like, you know, this was a horrible thing to say. And I think she looks great. And that was, you know, nice. But like, again, the whole point is we can't let our, kind of sense of self be on such a fragile place that any random person who I don't even know what all's going on in her life, right? That that was what she wanted to do that day. You know, I can't let that ruin my day or um, stop me from doing the work that hopefully is helping a lot of people. Yeah. I, actually, a good advice that I've heard, like I follow Gary Vaynerchuk for like business advice and social media stuff. And he once said that, was it um, people who are starting their businesses and they're like putting themselves out there on social media and maybe you won't get it right right away and you have this fear that people will make fun of you and he's like who cares if they make fun of you like if you search them up they're probably not any more successful than you are he's like the only time you should really care is like if someone like Mark Zuckerberg took the time to go on your little posts on Facebook and make fun <laughs> of you maybe then you should care but the people that are looking at your stuff are not any more successful than you. So you just keep going and you don't even pay attention to that stuff. And I'm like, man, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And I think if someone's got a critique of your work that feels like that's something, you know, to look at, that's, that's one thing, but someone who's just going to attack how you look like that's, that's kind of lazy, right? That's yeah, not even definitely. really looking like Brene Brown says, you know, that, um, she has that quote in, I I can't remember which book of hers, but um, not the newest one, the one before that, you know, about like, I don't really want to hear from someone who's not out in the arena. So if you're putting yourself out there, then we can have a conversation, not a mean conversation, um, but we can have a conversation. But yeah, if you're just kind of troll is the perfect word, you know, trolling the <laughs> internet, looking for someone to attack when you're not really putting yourself out there, you know, that's kind of, that's just kind of lame. But yeah, I think it, it happens, you know, yeah. we just kind of can't, can't really... I can't waste too much time on it because, and it's not easy. I mean, that was not a fun thing to have happen. I cried. I went to the gym and worked out again, you know, because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Get skinnier. It was, you know, but it started this process of me looking at, like, that can't be how I live my life, right? That can't, how my body looks can't be my sense of worth because that can change. What if I got in an accident and could never work out again? I mean, I have PCOS and insulin resistance. And if I don't keep up on my exercise, I put on weight very easily, like, so what's going to happen then, right? What if I have, I have a new child and I can't work out for, because my body's in a place that it's in and I haven't slept. And, you know, we got to be able to have, I think, um, just our sense of worth can't be overly tied up in, in how we work. And But I, on the same token, I don't want women to feel like having a goal of body change or weight loss is a bad thing. It's a great thing. If that's the body that you feel like you're more comfortable in, you feel more at home in, and that feels good to you, and you can go about that in a healthy way, again, nourish, not punish, um, 
great. Like, let's help you do that in a way that um, supports your physiology. And I don't think it's vain or bad. Um, We just can't do it because we feel like that's the only way that we'll have something to offer. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, I think there's a lot of people out there that think you're awesome and that one person was just just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So to wrap up, because we're already like going into an hour, these things always go so fast. Like I I don't know where the time goes, but um, can you tell everybody um, where they can find you online, if you have any like products coming out or speaking engagements, things like that? Yeah, so I'm at betterbydrbrook.com, and that's how you can get in touch with me if you're interested in working with me or want to look on like my blog. I have lots of free information there, and I do have a podcast, Better Every Day with Sarah and Dr. Brooke. You can find that iTunes. You can find that on my blog as well. And I'm not sure when you're airing this, but I have a retreat coming up. I'd love to tell people about that. Sarah and I are doing um, kind of a small, intimate retreat in Northern California. And you can see that on my website, again, betterbydrbrook.com. And the early bird registration expires April 1st. So if this goes up before that, you can still get in. (laughs) Awesome. So I just want to thank you for all your time. This was amazing. Sure. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 39 with Dr. Brooke. She was an amazing interview, and honestly, I think I need to get her on again because she had so much information, especially with the longest answer in the history of this podcast. So again, go check out the website, cuttheshitgetfit.com or empowerhp.ca. It's going to take you to the main hub. I have lots of blogs out there information and let me know some feedback if you got questions send them out to me follow me on social media share this podcast and i will be forever grateful until next time you guys